Do you think that if you were falling in space, that you would slow down after a while or go faster and faster? Faster and faster. But for a long time, you wouldn't feel anything. And then you'd burst into fire. Forever. And the angels wouldn't help you. Because they've all gone away. Welcome to Lost in Twin Peaks. Today's episode is called Laura's Outer Circle and Fire Walk With Me. We're going to be talking about basically her social connections kind of outside of her home and school life. So looking at everything from charity to drugs, uh, characters she interacted with who were often part of the criminal world. And uh, that will be, you know, we'll be talking about the scenes in the film, but we'll be organizing it by those different storylines. And actually that works out um, conveniently as well, because we're looking in reverse order at how these stories were introduced to uh, Twin Peaks. So, for example, the first story we're covering, Harold and the Secret Diary, that was one of the later Laura storylines introduced in the show. And then her relationship to Renette was one of the earliest, but it still came after the stuff we're going to discuss tomorrow, which is like Donna and James and Bobby and the Palmers and, and her murder, of course. So it actually worked out perfectly to do these in a sort of reverse chronology of how they're introduced uh, that also worked thematically. And Renette, I think, works as a kind of a hinge between those two worlds, especially the way that they end up incorporating her, which I'll talk more about in the Mysteries podcast. And just a reminder, please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And you can also become a patron on patreon.com slash lost in the movies. So let's start with uh, the scenes organized by the Laura storyline. First up, uh, appropriately enough, because we're moving backwards through the series, starting with uh, the Laura storyline that emerged the most re in, in, in the latest episode, and that was uh, way back in episode nine. That was the last time a new storyline entered Twin Peaks, and it was uh, Laura's relationship to Harold and the Secret Diary. So we're going to start with that appropriately enough, since that's kind of where her narrative in the film really starts going, uh, with the scene where Laura discovers the missing pages from her diary. She's flipping through, she's got, got home from school, Smoking a cigarette, dancing around the room, she reaches behind her dresser, pulls out her diary, and as she's flipping through, the music starts to become more ominous, and she sees that there are pages torn out, and she freaks out, and she runs out of the room. And I want to open my uh, observations on that with actually somebody else's observation. Uh, Grail Marcus, quoting once again from his uh, book, The Shape of Things to Come, in particular his essay, and this is a whole 50-page chapter in his book, American Pastoral, Cheryl Lee as Laura Palmer. And he writes of this scene, In the moment, in a moment that will reemerge throughout the picture, there's a dim sense of being transported into the past, the silent movie past, where the camera moved in on a face and stayed there. The face spoke, and the eyes were the mouth. Cheryl Lee shakes in Laura Palmer's terror, and for an instant, it seems like too much. The terror of a girl whose secrets have been stolen as the perils of Pauline, the heroine tied to the railroad track. But the movie has put your ear to the rails. You catch the rush of the locomotive. The intensity in Cheryl Lee's face makes the scene into a vortex. You can't believe the girl in the room gets out of it. The story is beginning to tilt. From this point on, Laura Palmer will be the locomotive, hardly able to keep up with herself. This is the first hint of what will be the most bottomless female performance of the latter days of the 20th century, the most extreme, the most dangerous, the most ludicrous it can seem, because today, the emotional nakedness of silent acting, its totality, can seem ludicrous. You can laugh and get off the train. You can stay on the train until the train runs out of track. And he continues throughout that essay to uh, compare Charlie's performance to uh, silent film actresses, which I, I think is a really astute observation. And I just wanted to start off on that note by reading that. I think this really is one of the great film performances of all time. 
and uh, even to this day underrated, although it's gotten a lot more credit, I think, in recent years than it did at the time. Now, uh, there's one uh, sort of uh, sequence here that flows out of this scene where she drives to Harold's, she ends up at Harold's, gives him the diary, all of that. This was intended to be interrupted in the script by an encounter with Sarah. And, uh, you know, this is in the deleted scenes. You can really see how it interrupts the flow of the film. Uh, for all that this film was already criticized as being jagged by critics, and uh, even, you know, I, I feel sometimes like there are some moments, like I talked about with the transition to Cooper sitting in Philadelphia, sometimes it feels sort of awkward, but it becomes much smoother as it is than if you were to put all those deleted scenes back in, as, as some people have as an experiment. Um, some people feel like, oh, it's more complete that way. I, I think a moment like this, it's got to keep carrying on and just flow into the Harold stuff. Like there's the, the film just has much more power and momentum that way. Now, that said, uh, supposedly there was one big cut of the film even beyond the rough cut stage. Like they, they tried to keep some scenes in for quite a bit of a ways into like a fine cut. And uh, eventually... Lynch was encouraged, like, look, we just got to take a lot of this stuff out. If you want to premiere it at Cannes, it's got to lose a lot of this, a lot of this footage. So that means that there would have been a cut in early 1992 done by Mary Sweeney, the editor of the film, uh, because the missing pieces, when they actually stitched together the deleted scenes on their own, it was David Lynch doing it his way, usually sticking with the take for much longer than Firewalk with Me does. Um, you know, we'll talk about that in the in the missing pieces coverage, but. Uh, it makes me really curious to see how Mary Sweeney cut those deleted scenes. Uh, so as they say, release the Sweeney cut. <laughs> so uh, this scene, the sequence continues with the, the dissolve into Laura driving to Harold's, arriving at the house. And uh, in Harold's house, she tells him, like, he's going to take the diary. Bob doesn't know about him. Uh, interestingly enough, though, if the secret diary is to believe... Uh, to, to be believed, then uh, Bob would know about Harold because Harold was written about in the diary, and obviously uh, Bob has gone through the diary, it seems. But in this version of the story, at least, or at least as far as Laura can think in this moment, uh, it's safe with Harold, so she leaves it with him. And you see their closeness here. He feels like somebody who knows more of her than some of the other people, like she's hiding less from him. Uh, they embrace, they kiss at one point. Now, putting aside the uh, the secret diary as, as written by Jennifer Lynch, the novel, uh, for a moment, because that has its own complications in it, uh, we have to wonder, is this the first moment there's been any sort of like kiss between them or embrace? Uh, was there always some romantic element to it going along? Obviously, he's an older man. She's, you know, a, still a minor. Uh, we don't really know the full parameters of their of their uh, interactions, but we do know in this sequence here, she seems to be uh, ready to say more to him than she is to anybody else. And perhaps because of that, she is uh, she she can't see him again. She tells him that she has to go. She doesn't know if she'll ever see him. Maybe never. He's very distressed by this. So this is an interesting moment because it gives her an opportunity to express herself and her full fears and her doubts to someone and then slices that person off. So now it's basically just us in the audience and her knowing this stuff. And also the secret diary was such a big element on the show. Like this is the way into Laura's uh, personal life, her inner life and all of that. And it's already being pulled away from us in the first really minutes of her story in this film. So it's like, okay, you don't have that to rely on. You just have Laura pay attention to Laura. There's a moment where as she's leaving, he kind of moves her head and she just stares at him. And then she says, I don't know when I can come back. It, it, it almost makes me feel like a line was cut, something he said there. But I like the way that they that they uh, reshaped it, if so, where it's like that moment of silence and just looking. And the again, that silent actress quality, speaking volumes just with her face. And then the secret diary only comes back into the story at the very end of the film when Leland pulls it out inside of the train car, showing Laura the torn pages of the diary, says, your diary, I thought you knew it was me, and shows kind of what he was reading, why he was obsessively prowling through her diary there, and how, in a way, that also leads to this moment. I've talked about how it's the moment of Teresa realizing that, like, Teresa... 
was killed by Leland that, that kind of leads to the death. And, and in, in turn, Teresa realizing Leland is probably Laura or Renette's father and that that's why he ran away, that that's kind of the moment that, that leads. And of course, you know, the initial starting point of all of that is Leland's abuse of Laura, which is what both uh, sends her in the direction that she goes in in terms of, of prostitution and drug use and all of that, but also is partly why Leland feels so guilty because it's something he's never really confronted or he's compartmentalized in his life. We'll get to talk about that more. That doesn't have so much to do with the diary, but I bring it up because the discovery, his discovery of her diary is also something that is uh, a, a jumping off point for everything else. So moving back through the series to earlier Laura storylines established earlier on, there's her relationship to Jacques, which was established back in uh, episode four of the series, where we're finding out that he was uh, worked at One-Eyed Jack's and the Roadhouse and had some sort of connection to her death, given the poker chip and all of that. In this film, uh, well, also I should note, uh, the relationship to Harold and the secret diary, that that hadn't come up for about... 15 entries that obviously there's no reason for that to be in the back half of the series. I think 14 entries to be exact since the episode where Leland dies and Donna goes and gets the page of the diary and reads about Laura's dream. And that's the last time the diary enters into the show. And then it's off to, you know, uh, Wyndham Earl and uh, uh, Josie's intrigue and Annie and Cooper and all that stuff. So it's coming back in a big way now in this film, as it has to do with it being Laura's story. As for her relationship to Jacques, we hadn't seen anything about that for even longer. Uh, it was about 25 entries before, uh, so back in episode five, you know, where they go to Jacques' cabin. That's really the last time that her relationship to Jacques was front and center. At that point, it kind of becomes subsumed within the larger murder case. And it goes on for a few more episodes as they're investigating him. They question him about the night of Laura's death. And then by early season two, that's out. So now it's back here. And we have Jacques inviting Laura and Renette to his cabin while they're partying at the nightclub at Partyland. Tells her, hey, come down to my cabin on Thursday. We'll have a party and all this. And that's setting up the night of her death. Little does anybody know. And you have to wonder, too, like what just so many things coincide to lead to her death that in a way it seems inevitable. But it's also like, well, what if this one element had been taken away? Would she have lived on? Would would the moment have passed and something else have happened? You don't quite know. Um, would Leland have killed her in the house? I mean, he did with Maddie. So it's possible. But it seems with the daughter, it's like somehow it has to be somewhere else. And uh, so it ends up being out there in the woods, uh, grabbing her at the cabin. I mean, it's a, so this is one more element being set up, one more, one more uh, breadcrumb on the path to, to what's going to kill her. And then later, Laura finds him in the woods when she's left uh, James on the motorcycle. And she gets out there and he's sitting by... Uh, Leo's Corvette with Leo and Renette and uh, right on time, baby. And then they're out and we see them partying in the cabin, uh, all snorting Coke, making out, drinking, passing a joint around, playing their music loud out in the woods. And then he starts to tie her up and she's saying, don't tie me up. Don't tie me up. And the bird Waldo is flying around the cage as this moment of distress and showing that even though, you know, there's this, the dynamic in their in their uh in their relationship where she seems to like things about Jacques but he is also i mean it's it, he's literally like a 40 something year old huge man who can do anything he wants with her and she can't really stop him in this moment you see that that even if they at times have a more um even killed. I can't say really reciprocal. Cause I mean, again, she's like a 17 year old and he is, you know, in his, in his, uh, well, he's, he's older than that. And the, so, but, but there is, there are moments like in the party land stuff where it seems like she has some kind of, uh, she has something that he respects. And in this moment, there's no respect. There's just like, you know, the hunger and the lust of this man who wants to take advantage of her tying her up, even though she's screaming, no Renette runs to grab her. Uh, Leo pulls her back. And this is of course also the moment where Leland's is arriving at the uh, cabin. 
So this is what we get of Jacques in this movie. Uh, I don't know that anything would be a particularly flattering portrait, but this certainly is not. Uh, there's nothing about Laura's connection to Maddie in this film at all. Maddie never comes up. I think on the series, she served the purpose of being away to Laura for Lynch, and that now she served that purpose, and the focus is just on, on Laura. Now we reach one of the most important storylines that uh, was not introduced in the pilot. It was introduced in the episode after, and that is Laura's spirituality. The first time we get any hint of this and uh, in some ways that has more to do with Sarah, but it, it ties in with Laura, is uh, b certainly because it introduces Bob, that moment where Sarah is hugging Donna and she sees Laura's face superimposed over Donna, and then she sees an image of Bob hiding behind the bed and she screams. And that's the first moment in the series where we're like, oh, something more was going on with Laura than being a troubled girl in this small town. Like, there was another element there. And by now, that's blossomed or morphed into all of this other stuff now a lot of this is uh it, it's topics we're going to focus on in the mythology section on its own so i'm just going to go more through the scenes themselves and just talk about some observations that i thought of some of them having to do with the spirit stuff some not so much uh, throughout all of these sequences but there's a lot of them in the film so to start with we have laura and donna discussing falling in space and the idea of angels this is something that wasn't in the script it was uh, added, as was all the angel stuff, which is interesting given the crucial role it ultimately plays in the uh, film. The next time any sort of spirit connection happens with Laura is when her face turns white as she's saying, fire walk with me to Harold. And it's jarring to hear Bob's name at this point in the story, uh, at this point in the film, I should say, because we've been dealing with kind of the normalcy of her life for this whole passage, going to school, even the stuff that's not so good, doing cocaine and all of that is, you know, her, her trouble when she's talking to James, obviously that whatever's haunting her, it's all grounded in a kind of reality. And we've, we may have almost like forgotten about Bob. So to hear her just mention him forthright, it's about Bob, you know, that's like, whoa, uh, that, that kind of, startles us and also that whole first section where like nobody has a clue what's going on they don't know how to they they can't identify whatever has contributed to Teresa's death and has made Chet disappear and everything even the sequence where Jeffries is talking about seeing them we, we recognize these characters if we've seen the show all sitting around that table in the convenience room uh, convenience store the the room above it but we you know they aren't named so much on screen i don't think uh i'm not sure the little man ever says bob's name but you know they're just these haunting forces to to hear her name it in this moment with harold it takes you aback it, it's funny too how the first part of this movie like especially when you're at this point in laura's story and we're like getting into this specific narrative you really it really reinforces how this is like two different movies at least uh, so much so that Lynch was basically, you could almost feel like he was forced to make explicitly dual narratives later in his career to retroactively justify this one. Like, okay, well, I did it with Firewalk Me, so I guess it's a pattern now. You know, the detective story followed by Laura's story, totally separate from it. Next scene in the storyline is Bob hypnotizing Laura under the ceiling fan where she's staring up and this light is kind of flashing over her. In this scene, she's wearing a red shirt, which, because she's dressed differently in the other stuff, and it's, I, I assume it's supposed to be the same day, I always thought this was like pajamas or something, like she had come down at night and was being kind of caught under the fan. But actually, this is the same shirt she's wearing in that scene with James. So I talked before about how that scene was moved around. That was supposed to take place on like a Saturday, and there is no Saturday in the film, really. They kind of cut it out, I think, to jump to... Uh, the party land stuff on a Sunday, and then Leland taking her out to breakfast on a Monday, which would seem odd, but it's President's Day, so it kind of makes sense narrative. So we're getting off track from the spirits, but uh, just noting how that stuff was moved around and why that scene uh, is has a little different costuming than the rest. But if you even notice it, I think you're more taken in by the effect. I will say this is something, one of those rare instances that gets uh, really expanded upon in a missing pieces in a way that... I don't know if it would have worked in the context of this film. Probably not. It might have been too much for this moment, but uh, it, it's quite a moment on its own, what they do with that. 
Laura gets a picture from the Tremons outside of the diner. They show up there and uh, hand off this this picture of the open door, which she then takes home and walks up the stairs with it. It's almost like it's her key through a, some sort of gateway. And that's when she sees Bob in her bedroom, hiding behind the dressers if he's looking there for the diary. And he yells like this very... It's it's like a lion the way he yells and we go into his mouth there. Uh, that moment doesn't usually terrify me the way it terrifies me. I've heard people describe it as like the scariest scene of all of, in all of Twin Peaks. Her opening the door slowly and boom, Bob is right there, and we see him and he's he's like yelling right at us. It's like this ferocious moment, and I see it in theory. Usually when I watch it, it doesn't have the same visceral effect that like. Bob climbing over the couch does, for example. That, to this, I don't care how many times I've seen it, probably like 30 or something, just on its own or in the episode, and I still have an involuntary shudder when he crawls right up to the lens. Uh, This moment, for whatever reason, just the way it's cut, there's like a slight delay or something, and that's exactly what does it for a lot of people. And for me, it kind of just is like, oh, yep, there's Bob. But my, you know, my body doesn't all shudder all at once. This time was actually a little different because I was taking notes on all the stuff I had paused. I'd broken up the viewing and I was kind of tired. And as it was getting closer to this moment, I just sort of started to drift off and it jolted me right out of that in a way that was actually kind of terrifying. So that was, that was interesting that that happened this time. Uh, notably, when Laura's going up the stairs to her room, I believe there's two stairs. You can go there from the sort of parlor area, the coming, you know, the 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 door entry coming from the front door, or you can go around and go like a back way from the kitchen, which is where Sarah goes in the pilot. So it's like a two, you know, interesting that they would choose a house like that where uh, you have this kind of double life going on, anyways, in this town and in this in this family, really. So. That could be a total coincidence, probably is, but there is something interesting, especially because they don't use it. They never really emphasize that that's how it is, interestingly enough. But at any rate, I found it curious that Laura went around the long way. She comes in through the front door, and she doesn't just go right up those stairs. She walks around through the living room, kind of prowls around through the kitchen, then up the back stairs... And uh, I think it prolongs the moment, which is nice. She may also just want to sort of prepare herself in some way. She may also want to like almost like hide from the fan in a way, like she's coming up the opposite way. I don't know. There's just something interesting about that. And it also allows us to have these shots surveying the whole house, these steady cam point of view shots. And this type of shot is in almost all of Lynch's later films where it's like a steady cam moving around a domestic space from a character's point of view. You have it in Lost Highway, you have it in Mulholland Drive, you have it in Inland Empire. I don't think you have anything like that in Straight Story, and that's really the only one of his later films that doesn't. And there's nothing quite like this in his earlier works. Like the shots inside the apartment of Blue Velvet are generally more steady, uh, more more like, I, I know I'm talking about a steady cam, but I don't mean steady in that sense. I mean more like sturdy lockdown they're not kind of swooning a little bit like the steady cam does this is for those of you who don't know this is like the handheld device that keeps the camera kind of smooth but allows you to move it and it creates this kind of gliding sensation martin scorsese uses it a lot paul thomas anderson and other directors and lynch uses it more and more in his later films and it gives them a very different aesthetic than the early ones blue velvet does have a significant steady cam work on the stairs outside of uh, Dorothy's apartment when Jeffrey is walking up those stairs. So, uh, you know, that's another element of, of Lynch's aesthetic is the characters walking up stairs and you see the looking down at them kind of going up um, in front of them and then also from their point of view. And that you do have in Blue Velvet and you have it here, obviously, on the stairs as Laura goes up. Like Lynch is fascinated with stairs as a passage between, uh, well, between two worlds as always. And uh, I created a video, a video essay where I compared the film Meshes of the Afternoon by Maya Darren, experimental work from the 1940s, 
uh, in many of its like thematic elements, many of its stylistic elements to later Lynch films. And she has this type of shot as well. They didn't have a steady cam at the time, but just sort of using a handheld camera surveying around a room. And uh, this, so, so I was able to put all of these shots side by side and they really do jibe well together. Like the, the Mulholland drive, the lost highway, et cetera, like, all kind of surveying a, a domestic space. I'll, I'll link that in the show notes. So back to the film, Laura puts her door picture on the wall where it's got the open door and she goes to bed staring up at it and then dreams about it or it offers her a vision uh, taking her into this space, which seems to be above the convenience store and then into the red room. I noticed on this viewing that there is like a swan cup on her desk holding these glitter sticks. She's got a lot of little knickknacks, probably from when she was like younger in the room. And it's funny because I used, when I uh, was creating those, the Journey Through Twin Peaks videos, I used the David Lynch song, the Julie Cruz song written by Lynch and Badalamenti called The Swan. When Laura goes to bed, shuts off her light and is staring up at this picture. And I didn't, I don't think I even realized there was actually a swan in the image. So that's kind of fascinating to me. The reason I use that song there is uh, its associations with Hindu spiritual ascension, which is, I think, why Lynch wrote the song in the first place, given his transcendental meditation practice. Uh, so that's an interesting connection there for sure. Now, I don't know if we ever see the picture that Laura replaces on the wall with the open door. A lot of people think she replaces the angel picture, but she doesn't. It's actually up higher on the wall. And when she takes the picture down later, the door picture, you see her put it on top of another frame that's face down. But I checked through just because I was curious. And every time they could photograph that wall, like they never do. Like, so you never see what the other picture was. Like the angle will stop just to its left or just to its right or it'll be a little too low, and you never, as far as I could tell, you never get to see what she replaced the door with, which is an interesting question. So we get these POV shots of her walking through the hallways past the Tremons inside that space, that dream space. The little man appears in her dream in the red room showing her the ring, and Cooper says, don't take the ring. We'll talk more about what that means with the mythology and the mystery of, of Laura and why she died. Laura then, after this part of the dream, finds herself in bed with somebody, a bloody woman in there. Uh, we know who she is, but Laura has no idea. And uh, she, this, this, this bloody person says, you know, I'm, I'm in the lodge with the good Dale, or the good Dale is in the lodge, write it in your diary. And uh, Laura turns around, she looks back, and the woman is gone. She freaks out. She sees a ring in her hand. And then she, uh, as she walks to the door, looks out in the hallway, she look, turns around and she sees herself in that open door picture. This is something interesting. I talked about how the Bob thing never quite shocked me. This open door stuff, I, I love the concept. I find it fascinating. Um, it had a different effect on me the first time I watched the film than later ones. Later ones, I guess I was just used to it. It really creeped me out the first time. Like that deep uncanny lynchian sensation that i think many of you know what i'm talking about that you get like in your gut almost as you're watching something and it just it had that like total unease creating image like something is going to come through that door at any moment it was so terrifying the next time that uh well, well of course laura takes down the picture in the morning worth noting that so she's ending her kind of that that aspect of her kind of spiritual journey later she's talking to the log lady or the log lady i should say talks to her outside the roadhouse stops her as she's going in and gives her the speech about the the um well i i played it in an earlier section i think the the idea that she is being she, the, it's very hard to put out this fire once it starts. And she is, um, you know, I think a lot of people read it straightforwardly. It's like, you're getting into trouble. Be careful. Um, uh, I don't know how much agency it's imputing to Laura in terms of like, you're the one doing this, you can stop it and so forth. Um, there's, it's, it's complicated in this film because I don't think it's really a moralizing film per se. I do think 
it has a view of Laura that she does, there is some control she can exercise, but it doesn't feel to me, and this is maybe just the way I read it, like it's judging her so much for failing to. It's just sort of observing her journey in that process, if that makes sense. There, As the log lady approaches Laura here, there's this bright light on her, but it's like a sort of a harsh, um, not harsh exactly, but like it's, it's a bright focus light that leaves part of her in shadow. Um, I suppose this would be a chiaroscuro effect, but I think of that as more like backlit. Maybe that's wrong, but that's kind of how I think. This isn't quite that. This is like the pools of light on her. There's like a dramatic mix of light and dark that's really beautiful to observe. And Lara is standing right next to her, but because of where she's positioned, she's cast entirely in red from the neon sign. Just beautiful, beautiful lighting in this scene. And the one that follows, too, honestly. Later in the film, Laura has a flashback to the shot of the little man's ring. I think it's a different shot where we're actually descending down. The camera's moving down towards him. And she's remembering times she saw the ring. And that's when she sees a bright light outside of her window. And she hears, or she doesn't hear anything, but she speaks to Bob as if this light is his presence. And saying, you know, who are you? Who are you really? asking these questions, and these are repeated uh, the following night when Laura uh, is in her bed and Bob comes in through the window, and it's like this whole mystical scene, the same thing, there's like those the blue flickering light outside the window signifying his presence and his approach. Electricity throughout this film obviously used as a major mythological spiritual motif, and uh, associated here certainly with Bob. I think associated with some more positive forces as well at times. Like I, I think it's I think of it as more of like a, a transportation or a signifier of the spirits, not necessarily of you know positive or negative energy. I think it can be both. And uh, in this sequence, this is when Bob is uh, raping Laura, and there is then the revelation of, of who he is, which is more worth discussing, I think, in other in other story sections. This is a moment where it kind of transcends the spiritual aspect in a way. Later on, as Laura's preparing for her last night out, she sees the angel disappear from her picture. Very haunting moment and very poetic moment. Like there's nothing, there's like a certain sense of rules to the spirituality in this film where it's like some mechanics almost that um, I found, certainly when I first watched it, were a little frustrating. Like, I don't want this stuff. I just want the 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 Laura story at this point. Like, this is, you know, you're creating something of immense psychological impact. Why are you putting in all this mythos? I think there's a more complex, interesting aspect to that now at this point where they kind of enhance each other, even if at times they butt up against each other. But then there's stuff in the movie that, to me, it doesn't feel like that type of mythology or spirit spirituality it's more of like a poetic transcendent grace note and the angel disappearing from the picture is something like that. There's no sense of like the lodge can take an angel from a photo. Like it's not that type of thing. It's this is reflecting her state and manifesting in the world in just such a powerful way. And then finally, inside of the train car, she's being murdered. Laura is uh, not being murdered yet because I don't think that's the point of what's happening here to her uh, up to the point where she is killed. I think there are other goals and other purposes in mind. But she's being tormented by Bob and uh, she's crying as she sees Renette praying and then she sees this angel in the train car. So an angel actually manifesting after that earlier speech where she says the angels have all gone away. They won't help you. The, the time where she asks the angel on the wall, is it true, looking up after her father's come and held her hand and said he loves her, and she's like, can this be true, looking at the angel for help, and it's just a static image on the wall, it can't help her, and then eventually disappearing from that picture altogether. And now here it is, manifest in reality, but for Renette, not, not for Laura. And again, I think there's a reason for that. But it does create a chain of events which leads to uh, the one-armed man, I believe, throwing the ring in the train car. Now, there are others who disagree with that. They say the ring kind of just comes through like a portal or something, you know, like it, that the, the one-armed man does not physically deliver it. 
Uh, I think Al Strobel said in an interview, like, oh, I didn't have the ring when I was shooting it, which honestly makes sense because the ring was most likely added afterwards as an insert shot uh, during post-production, given how Lynch developed the scene. Uh, John Thorne has written about this very compellingly, and uh, but he also concludes that the one-armed man had other reasons for delivering the ring and uh, why Lara gets it which seems to serve a positive function for her, which is that, yes, Bob kills her, but now she's not going to be possessed by him. And there's so much more that can be said about that and that we will say about that. But uh, the way that scene is cut, it's cut into little fragments. It's very hard to kind of grasp upon. You have to reflect back on it and think about it and, and intuit things about it. And finally, there's that little montage where Laura is unwrapped in slow motion, close up, and then we see a monkey whispering Judy. And this monkey was present in uh, an earlier scene, uh, which we didn't discuss in this section because it doesn't directly tie into Laura. It's the scene above the convenience store. Um, we see, like, at one point, the little boy removes his mask and the monkey's there. And uh, the monkey whispers Judy. And I put that here because the Judy feels associated to Laura in this moment, given that we've just seen her unwrapped and that we're about to see her in the red room. And this is sandwiched in between those shots. It's funny, I didn't even hear the line this time, even though I've seen the movie so many times and I know it's coming. It's so quiet on the soundtrack. If you don't have it turned up to exactly the right volume, you, you don't hear the monkey say Judy. Like people have missed it entirely. It's fascinating. Um, it could be a standalone scene in a sense, uh, the only standalone scene in the movie that doesn't tie into a larger story. And some might argue that it is, but uh, I see it as is feeling, again, related to Laura, part of this moment here. And it's interesting that the shot of, of Laura being unwrapped in plastic is from the pilot. It's that exact shot, just, you know, cropped differently for a widescreen, zoomed in a little. And it serves a whole different purpose here. There, it's revealing her death. Here, it's revealing something else, her transcendence. It's being used as like a a moment of deliverance. And uh, we go right into the red curtains uh, from, you know, they have the monkey and the red curtains. And then uh, the curtains dissolve into her face, almost as if the curtains are unwrapping to reveal her as well. I love that moment. And then finally, we have the scene of Lara and Coop and her angel in the red room. And she weeps the tears of joy as she sees... Um, well, as the angel is present over her, whether it's exactly the angel she's reacting to or something that the angel is present for or manifest of is all pretty open to interpretation. But it's quite a beautiful moment. I think it's troubled some who felt like, why are we getting, like, why is she, why is there like a reward involved in this horrible event? Like, that doesn't seem, it almost seems more unfair in a way to say, well, she went through that suffering. Now she gets her angel. Um, and again, I think there's a little bit more of a complicated dynamic going on with that. So now we are finally to Laura's storylines, storylines involving her that were introduced in the pilot. Amazing that all that stuff that we've already talked about just comes out of stuff that was mentioned later in the series that wasn't present at the inception. So first of all, or last of all, since we're moving backwards through the through the pilot's plot elements, is uh, prostitution, Laura's uh, involvement in the sex trade. This is 15 entries after the last appearance of this storyline, which used to be grouped along with Flesh World and One-Eyed Jacks, and then they all split off into separate threads later in season one because it seemed like maybe they were leading in different directions. But by now it's clear that they were all related as avenues for sex trafficking, whether by Jacques or Blackie or Emery or the Horns or whoever. Like, that was what Laura was enmeshed with. So we have the scene where she is crying in the roadhouse and uh, weeping for the Julie Cruz song. She looks up, she sees Jacques at the bar and he's kind of looking over like, you up for it tonight? And she nods and he sends two guys at the bar over to her and uh, they sit down, they offer her money Buck, and I, I keep wanting to say the other one's name is Tim. I'm not sure. He's kind of the sidekick. And uh, he's hitting on her. She says, hey, you want to you know, you fuck the homecoming queen? She says, ah, let's go around the world, baby. She looks at the amount of money he gave her, and she says, it's not going to get you to Walla Walla, which is a funny um, word, you know, watching this film. I thought, is that like some kind of, just some kind of anachronistic expression? It sounds like a Dr. Seuss thing. It's actually a town in Washington 
that is, uh, I think, not that far from where Twin Peaks is supposed to be. So it's like, this isn't going to get you very far, but it's such a great line. I mean, uh, again, Lynch and Engels coming up with these these strange bits of dialogue that feel so uh, sometimes amusing, sometimes resonant and poignant at the same time. I mentioned the lighting in the previous sequence, but again, here, the gorgeous lighting on Laura as she enters the bar, she's like this white, uh, bluish white offset from everything around her, which is very red. There's a red and a blue together on her face. Just the way they're able to get these two different colors uh, working like side by side, not conflicting with each other. It's just incredible to watch. And obviously, Julie Cruz on the stage standing there with the she's cast entirely in blue her background is entirely in red just incredible color work it's amazing to me that people saw this film and even if they didn't like things about it weren't like well this is an incredible aesthetic object if nothing else that is just beautiful to look at that they couldn't even see that some of them described it as like sloppy and slapdash and it's just like wow that's how do you come to that conclusion grill marcus writes about this in in uh, The Shape of Things to Come, this moment, a wonderful little bit describing Julie Cruz up there, says, Cruz stands on stage in a white taffeta gown. Against her bloodless skin, her lipstick is impossibly red, with just a hint of a smear. She might be some prom discard who was dumped here ten years ago with no way to get home, either because she wouldn't fuck her date or because she did. And after that, all she was good for was a laugh to get his buddies off. Throughout this essay, he has these kind of moments where he dives into backstories of just fleeting characters and and weaves it in with these noir films and novels he's describing. Uh, just kind of tapping into the way that Lynch's, Lynch's work is both kind of iconographic and exists without any context, and there's also always a context you can kind of add to and string along to it that makes it resonate for you in some way. And that's partly why he leaves it that way so that you can bring something of your own meaning to it. And speaking of Lynch and what he does and why he does it, uh, there's a passage in Lynch on Lynch, which Grail Marcus cites. This is the interview book with Chris Rodley, where Rodley asks Lynch, do you remember when this passion for music started? And, uh, you know, saying this in connection with the Julie Cruz song and the singing questions of a world questions in a world of blue in this, uh, in this, in this scene, and Lynch answers Rodley, "Oh, absolutely, the exact moment. It gets dark, you know, very late in Boise, Idaho, in the summer. It was not quite dark, so it must have been like maybe nine o'clock at night. I'm not sure. That nice twilight and a beautiful night. Deep shadows were occurring, and it was sort of warm. And Willard Burns came running towards me from about three houses down the street, and he said, "You missed it." And I said, "What?" And he said, "Elvis on Ed Sullivan." And it just like set a fire in my head. How could I have missed that? And this was the night, you know, but I'm glad I didn't see it. It was a bigger event in my head because I missed it. And Grail Marcus notes about this, this observation. For Lynch, the passion began in absence with a sense of what you're missing, what you can't have. And that was what Lynch would put into his own songs. So obviously for these observations about the music and Julie Cruz were kind of going sideways from the, the, story arc that we're uh, describing here of, of Laura and the prostitution and the sex trafficking rings that she fell into. But in a way, also, it is related because I think in throughout Twin Peaks, there's this idea of this sort of illicit sexual secret life as being kind of tied to this adolescent longing that people have to like escape or live different lives. And it's tied to the sense of rock and roll. You know, Lynch does uh, he does have this kind of 50s sensibility in some ways where he's attracted and drawn to these this kind of unleashing of, of spirit and social constraints, but also frightened of it. And some have read this rather ungenerously as this very judgmental, like Calvinist strain. There's a book called The Pervert in the Pulpit, which is basically all, it's just like 200 pages of the of the author expounding on this thesis that Lynch is like, you know, both this like hyper-conservative, controlling Calvinist and also like a decadent sinner who wants to like rationalize these two. And I think, you know, I, I, it's kind of a ridiculous book in a lot of ways, but I do think it is kind of a cartoon version of what is going on in this, which is these complex forces and desires and curiosities and fears 
that Lynch expresses and kind of wraps up and finds the unifying thread between in some way. And I, I think one of the powerful things about this sequence is seeing Laura in this moment, this wounded moment where we're seeing what led her into all of the kind of illicit stuff that on the series is presented more like almost like an excited manner of like, Ooh, she was at one eye jacks and she was this and she was that. And now kind of peeling it back and seeing like the raw human emotion beneath it. Now this leads us to the party land pink room nightclub. I think pink room is the band and also the song that, no, the band is the power and the glory. I think, I don't know. There's so many different names for this club. It's hard to keep track. Power and the glory party land, pink room, and uh, Laura and Donna show up there with the, the two Johns. And uh, Renette shows up there as well. She references One-Eyed Jacks. The only time that One-Eyed Jacks is mentioned in the film, Renette says, uh, I remember, or Laura, one of them says, I remember the last time I saw you. Oh, yeah, it was up at One-Eyed Jacks. Actually, there's two times it's referenced because it's referenced later in the scene when uh, Buck is going down on them. And he says, oh, just like that time at One-Eyed Jacks. So... There's a tie-in there to what we saw in the show, but this space is so different from One-Eyed Jacks. It just makes like the perfect contrast, almost like kind of the Deer Meadow stuff does with, um, you know, with the town of Twin Peaks. Because on the one hand, One-Eyed Jacks, everything is sort of dressed up and disguised and one degree removed in a peculiar kind of fetishistic way where it's the TV version, basically. And this is just pure decadence, the music saturating everything, people stripped down naked, performing sex acts right out there in the open. And uh, it, it, so it's, I don't think it's any accident that they bring up One-Eyed Jacks in this place almost again to point up that, that difference between them there. And uh, there is actually, believe it or not, a version of the Party Land scene with no subtitles. I think he released in the UK. He went back and forth about whether he wanted people to really have to listen closely to figure out what they were saying or whether that was just too much to ask and you could create the same effect but have the information delivered via the subtitles. It may also be an accident. I think there may be a Lynch interview where he says, oh, no, I didn't intend that or something. But there is a version that people have seen where it's like they just it's just the noise and you have to like um, whatever the equivalence of squinting is when it comes to your ears to listen and pick up on what they're saying about all these important clues about blackmail and Teresa and everything like that. Grail Marcus in the book says, uh, the roadhouse, he says in Firewalk with me, the roadhouse is a border joint with one room in the United States where Cruz performs and another in Canada, which is to Twin Peaks as Tijuana is to San Diego. I love that description. I love that idea. Again, it rhymes with my own idea uh, or is actually identical to my own idea that I had when I first watched the film that they go into a back room and it's right on the Canadian border and now they're in a totally different space. Uh, but no, this is a different location. They drive to it, as I already described. But I just wanted to read that quote because I, I love that idea. I'm like married to that idea, even though it's literally not true in the text itself. So... Laura and Donna talk the following morning about what happened the night before, and as Leland sees them there in this sort of innocent embrace on the couch, he flashes back to Laura and Renette to an explicit moment of prostitution where they're both in lingerie, they're sitting on the bed together, and it has a totally different meaning. And so he's conflating these two, his daughter as this like innocent adolescent who is, you know, his precious little princess or whatever, and then this illicit secret life that he discovered that she's leading that he knows he is responsible for and he has shared with her because of his abuse so that's a powerful moment there not very subtle but very uh strong and then we have the flashbacks of leland uh spotting Teresa in flesh world so he's leafing through this magazine that was featured on the show a lot and ah, Teresa, you look just like my Laura. So right explicitly there seeking out this girl because she reminds him of Laura. So it's like not only was he having this affair, this this uh, this encounter, it was itself inspired by his lust for his daughter. So there's there's just so many levels to which what happened with Teresa is the displacement of what was happening will happen with Laura. And Lynch does that a lot, obviously, with doubling characters, doubling storylines, echoing, reflecting, and and Teresa is kind of the ultimate example of that amplification. 
and then we have the actual scene where he sees Lauren Renette. So we immediately get the context for that strange image we saw earlier of like, wait, why is he seeing them in laundry? I've actually heard people who saw the film not realize what was going on and think he was having a vision of like Lara and Donna in lingerie. Like they didn't realize that was Renette. And it was like, oh, why do you get this weird like urge or something? But um, it's it's actually like a, a piece of that flashback that we see later. And realizing, you know, it's that ultimate, um, the sort of the urban legend of like the father who goes to a whorehouse and sees his daughter and they both agree not to tell the mother or something like that. Like that's that type of, of, of situation, but even more intense here because of the history of abuse of Leland Ward Lara. Like he's being confronted with something he didn't want to see about himself and her and all of that. And And what role Bob plays in this we can discuss, but I think for the moment it's sufficient to just say this is like a an unexpected confrontation with something that was um, withheld from himself. So another storyline that plays out in this is Laura's relationship to Leo. It's been 22 entries since that had any relevance back when Leo was still a suspect in Laura's death. And then they kind of clear him realizing that he was in a, he was like in a, um, a jail the night Teresa was killed. If the same person killed Teresa and Laura, it couldn't have been him. So that was way back in like the beginning of season two. Now in this film, we don't get much between these two characters, but Laura does find him in the woods with Renette and Jacques. And uh, he gives her a look like it's it's funny. It's not, the, you know, the, he always seems intense and angry with Shelly and stuff. But in this moment, he's kind of like, yeah, okay, I'm relaxed. I know what I'm in for here. And uh, it's, I think, in a way, it's a pity we don't see more Leo and Laura interactions because, you know, in a way, it's a relief because, you know, Leo. But in the uh, Secret Diary, we get more of their dynamic. And it's like he has a kind of a more low-key side that comes out with her. Uh, although in this film, by the end of their sequence together, it's it's not that at all. He's leaving the cabin, and she's saying, oh, Leo, please untie me, and he just screams, shut up, as he grabs his boots and leaves. It's like, what an asshole, and that is the ultimate Leo moment, really. You know, the last time in this cycle from the pilot to firewalk me that we see him. It makes you reminds you of why he deserved to be out in the woods with his teeth clenching that spider cage in a much more differently toned moment than we get in this film. We have the charity storyline dealing with Meals on Wheels. This was eventually subsumed into the relationship to Harold and the Secret Diary because the Meals on Wheels is what brought Donna to Harold and finding out that part of Laura's life. So really that's ultimately the narrative purpose that the storyline served. There was also the aspects of Johnny and Josie, which don't really lead anywhere. But now in the film, in the early days before she is killed... We're getting a look at this just in its own right. Her carrying the meals on wheels through the Double R Diner, setting up her run. Uh, and this leads to then the confrontation with the Tremont. So she never actually delivers the the tray. And even when she goes to Harold earlier in the film, it's not on the meals on wheels run. It's just to give him the diary. So you wonder if she's going to skip him on her route today because she says she can't see him again. Or if she'd just leave it outside his door. But we don't really know. It's just, it's shown for a moment, I think... I mean, I think honestly, partly because Lynch likes to have Machinomic in the film, so it gives him an opportunity to set something in the diner. Plus, there was some other stuff that was supposed to take place in the diner that was cut, so it it serves that purpose too. But technically, the Tremonts could have come to her out of anywhere. Um, this also gives Cooper the opportunity to say she's carrying a large abundance of food, so like knowing what she's up to. That could be anything as well again. So Meals of Wheels, I don't think serve any real essential function. And they almost feel a little out of place because, uh, or it, it, the practice of serving Meals on Wheels feels a little out of place because uh, there's nothing else about her kind of charitable social giving. There's nothing really about her role in this community, in this film, hardly at all. E even the school stuff there was supposed to be a scene where all these people fall down to their knees and sort of mock worship Laura and Donna as they walk by, but they don't do that. She mostly just deals with Donna and James and Bobby and the people who know her closely. So there's no sense of her place within this web of this community in this film as it stands. So the Meals on Wheels part almost feels a little, uh, sticks out a little there. It's notable in this moment that Shelley does not want to help Laura, that 
is obviously because Shelly is seeing Bobby behind Laura's back, so she's a little uncomfortable. Plus, I think they just kind of don't quite get along. There's a moment where she she gives the tray to Shelly. I've, I've got to go. I, I can't do this right now. i got to go. And she runs off, and Shelly is like, why does she like puts the tray in the car? Like, what is going on with this girl? For the drug dealing, uh, 25 entries after its last appearance uh, in relation to Laura, which was uh, back when Bobby says that Laura forced him to sell drugs. Now we're seeing some of that story unfold. We have Bobby telling Laura about an upcoming drug deal. Um, I should say it's also actually hinted at in the first confrontation between them when she says, well, maybe he says to her, maybe sometime, uh, you know, maybe I will go away. And then what will you do when you really want me? You'll come calling and I won't be there or something. And it's like, he's kind of threatening her with like, oh, you want your drugs? Well, you know, you've got me as your go-between, so you better play nice. (laughs) And, And she kind of smiles and that's when everything warms up between them. But it comes out more explicitly when they're at school one morning. She says she's low on coke. He says, ah, he gives her a little bit. And then she he says, don't worry, like there's more on the way. We got a big deal tonight. So she goes with him out into the woods for that drug deal. They're laughing, drinking and smoking. And, and uh, then they kill a guy, which we've already talked about in the Bobby kills a guy storyline. Fun, funniest moment in the in the whole Lara section involves somebody having their brains blown out. So make of that what you will. The uh, addiction storyline, it's been 21 entries since this was uh, mentioned at all. I think probably the last time it came up was in the context of, um, what would it have been actually? Episode 9, I have to think about that for a second. Right, it's actually when Audrey is strangling Emery Battis and One-Eyed Jacks and forces him to say that Laura was kicked out of One-Eyed Jacks because she was using drugs. So that's the last time that Laura's Addiction actually came up in the show, if I'm not mistaken, and we get a lot of it in this film. As I said, you could have a whole cocaine section along with the food and coffee and and uh, and all of that, just in terms of its ubiquity. But the times where it actually plays into the plot, not just an element where she's kind of snorting amongst other things. We have Laura leaving Donna in the morning, uh, says, oh, got to go to the bathroom quick and, you know, think she's going to put on her makeup or something. But no, it's she gets into the stall and she snorts a little bump before before homeroom and then later we see her looking for her for cocaine in her diary she's only got a few little bits left in her little baggie this is of course the baggie that cooper will find in a few days um it's interesting to think of that because of the distance between the film and the show it's been uh, like two and a half years between when they were shot uh two years between when they were released and uh just in terms of us watching it, it's like 30 episodes separates them. But of course, this is just days before Cooper's going to enter the story and find all of these elements in a totally different context. And if you've ever tried watching Firewalk with me and uh, the pilot like back to back in that order, it feels very strange. Like they don't, it, Firewalk with me works better as like a reflection back on something you discovered a little while ago, even if you binge watched it and it was just a few days ago like going through all that and then getting to firewalk me, it kind of makes more sense than trying to stitch them together. I think you can do sort of like a fan cut or something where you cut certain storylines or character stuff uh, just as an experiment, but like actually taking the film itself as it stands and the pilot itself as it stands, it's uh, it's, it's a strange experience to watch them back to back. At least that was my experience. Let me know if you've ever tried it and had a, had a different one, but at any rate, uh, that's the uh, that's that's the moment that kind of hints at where we will be later in the in the in the series when when Cooper finds her public diary and finds the coke bag. I love that like her public diary is the one that has like illicit drugs in it. Uh, Laura then does cocaine in bed the night that Bob is going to come to uh, to the window, and uh, the obvious reason for that is to keep her awake, to keep her kind of, even though she'll be on drugs, like she's on a drug that's going to maybe sharpen her uh, attention to a certain extent. Uh, or it's just a coping mechanism, I don't know. But it, it does, this night she is able to focus enough to to figure out that really it's Leland and not Bob. And then uh, there's the scene I mentioned already where Laura gets the drugs from Bobby, so... You know, the drug dealing and the drug addiction kind of weave together in this somewhat, but uh, we get much more exposure to the addiction aspect. 
than than the rest. And of course, then there's also she's doing cocaine the whole night that she uh, is that 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 she's uh, gonna die. There's it's going on all throughout that that sequence. For the relationship to Renette, it's been uh, about 25 entries after this was uh, sort of split off into different other categories. Initially in the series, there was a question of like, oh, how are Laura and Renette related? Like, what's their connection between them? But as it goes along, you you find out and Renette becomes kind of secondary. So for example, it's like, okay, they work together at One-Eyed Jacks. Great. Put that aside. Let's now find out about One-Eyed Jacks. We don't care as much about... Renette, you know, her name, I think the last explicit connection is when Audrey is looking through Emery's books in his office and she finds the little journal with people's names and it has Renette with all the hearts after it. And then from that point on, it's it's One-Eyed Jacks and Laura. The Renette part is, you know, background. And Flesh World, same thing. It's like, okay, they posed together in Flesh World. They were involved. But Renette is just a way on the show for the detectives to kind of get at some of the stuff that's going on with Laura detectives, including, you know, people like Audrey, not necessarily just the sheriff and the FBI. And then also, uh, Renette continues to be in the story all related to the night of the murder. So she, at that point, her main relevance becomes, she was the only eyewitness to Laura's murder. Can she identify Bob when she gets out of her coma? And then, you know, eventually even is, uh, the, the killer tries to kill her and, uh, does not succeed. And so she goes off, uh, you know, we don't see her again for most of the series and wouldn't have seen her again. Certainly there was no intention to bring her back until Lynch in the finale gives her a haircut, puts her in like a sweater and jeans. Like she seems to have fully recovered. And even though she is haunted clearly still by the memory of what happened as she would be like two weeks later and really for the rest of her life, but she, she seems to have recovered somewhat. And that's an interesting touch for him to add, particularly given how we see her at the end of Firewalk with me and how we would have seen her at the end of the series if, if we'd left off like that. So that's Renette on the show. In this film, uh, Laura's relationship to her is first shown at, the, at Party Land. As I mentioned, Renette comes out of the haze in a very interesting fashion where it's Donna dizzy and hallucinating and weaving around and that's when Renette emerges right there kind of creating a kind of a subliminal connection between Renette and, and Donna Renette and uh, laughs about one-eyed jacks with Laura they dance together there as she laughs at Donna as she sees her like getting uh, basically like that being stripped down and all completely drugged out as this guy is is getting on top of her and uh, she just laughs. Is that Donna Hayward? Like you can see through her eyes, like she's not one of like the sort of bougie popular kids at school, like Laura and Donna are. And she's just laughing like, Oh look, the goody two shoes. Isn't that funny? Like, so she's, you know, that's her take on it. And again, that kind of contrast between Renette and Donna there seems significant. These are Laura's two friends from totally different sides of her life. Um, which also, you know, when when uh, when Leland sees Laura and Renette together, that's significant, and it, it, it ties it to Laura and Donna there as well. So Laura ultimately finds Renette in the woods with Jacques and Leo, and they go off together to party in the cabin. And there's an interesting moment in the midst of all of that where when Jacques is, like, on top of Laura, on her back, tying her up as she's screaming to stop Renette actually tries to intervene she runs over and says stop stop like leave her alone and Leo pulls her yanks her back and this is when the whole dynamic of the night changes from like these four people you know quote unquote equals again it's two like you know minors and two like criminal men but you know they're acting as if they're all on an equal playing field, and then it's like, nope, we're we're in power now. We're taking control of the situation in this moment. So, and she gets, I believe, she gets tied up as well by by Leo. There, there's also a moment before that where where things are more low key, where Laura kisses Jacques, and the camera pans over to Renette watching her, and then she turns and kisses Leo, and this feels like a really almost explicit recall of Donna doing the same thing in the roadhouse where Laura kisses Buck 
and then looks at Donna. So she leans over and kisses the other guy as like, okay, I'm going to follow you, follow suit here again, connecting these two characters as kind of like different wings of Laura in a way. And then of course, Renette and Laura are kidnapped and taken to the train car. This character who at times seems like such a minor character, but she's right here in the thick of things in the most important moments in all of Twin Peaks. And she's the one who's crying, weeping, the, t- the mascara running down her face, the lipstick all smeared inside the train car. And then she sees the angel. Laura sees the angel over, but Renette clearly sees it as well. Like she's staring up at it. She holds up her hands. They're untied. And that's when Leland knocks her out, throws her out of the train car. And when we see her the last time in the movie, he's leaving with the plastic, Laura wrapped in plastic. Renette's just lying there on the floor of the of the forest. And he kind of kicks her and she doesn't move. And it would be easy to conclude that she's dead, which would make you wonder why the angel came in. But of course, if you've seen the series, you know the rest of it. So that's really just laying out the groundwork for what we're going to talk about in the Laura mystery as of, uh, you know, why she was killed. The next Laura podcast is actually going to go up tonight. I'm doing these both in the same day, and then tomorrow we'll be caught up with the schedule as I originally planned it since I fell behind this past weekend. But it's good to have both Laura podcasts go up in a day anyways. I had to split them up over two episodes, but uh, both will be available today. An episode on what I'm calling Laura's Inner Circle, her relationship to Donna, to James, to Bobby, and then the Palmer family as a whole, and then her murder. So uh, obviously a lot of deep, rich, very heavy material there to talk about. And from there, the next day, we'll move into specific focus on the mysteries and what I think the end of the film really means. Hawk, bring in Ronald Pulaski. Thanks for coming in. Do you recognize this smell? Yes. The night Laura Palmer was killed. 